Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too, so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where each episode we break down and review a movie based on a link to the previous episode's movie. I'm Ed Howells and I'm joined by my co-host, Madeline Gould. Hello, Gould. How are you? Hello, darling. You're right. Uh, yeah, not bad at all. Not bad at all. Good. Uh, recovered from uh, from Christmas and New Year's and all those festivities. Yeah, yeah. It's quite nice to be back to normal, like that kind of back to school feeling, January feeling, which is... Yeah, it's quite nice. I, I do. I am compelled to attempt to get my shit together, which is always quite a nice feeling. You know, I've bought a notebook. <laughs> yes, very good. <laughs> uh, what have um, you been watching? Oh, very little. Yeah. So last time I spoke to you, I was going to go and see Priscilla. Yes. I went to see Priscilla, but the... Uh, screening was cancelled because there was a problem with the screen. Oh, no. So I went to see One Life instead. Oh, right. How was that? I was at the cinema. I was going to see something. Interesting. It's uh, it's advertised as an Anthony Hopkins film, but it is at least 50% a Johnny Flynn film. Right, okay. And I don't need that in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> the continuing success of Johnny Flynn baffles me. <laughs> I've got I've got no ill will towards the man. I you know every success, every happiness to him. I, I've never met him. I don't know anything about him really. Mm. I, he just yeah, um, he's an interesting one because I first came across him as a musician, and then a few years later I was like, what Johnny Flynn's doing some acting? That's interesting. And then I think there's this sort of a slight mythos surrounding him that he's this polymath and he's amazing. Mm. Well, it, it, yeah, here's the thing because uh, James Franco has the same thing, this polymath thing, that he does a bit of everything. Right. Um, there's another term for a polymath, uh, I've come to the conclusion. Uh, it's a very well-known term. It's jack-of-all-trades, master of none. <laughs> um, yes. Or, you know, to be less kind, a fucking dilettante. <laughs> and, you know, I speak as a, a self-professed dilettante. I, I dabble in all sorts of stuff and don't really yeah. do any of them at the highest level. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you see, you've got it wrong there, Ed, because that's all just about how you mark at it because what you should be doing exactly. you should be doing a Johnny Flynn on it and be and call yourself a polymath <laughs> yeah he's a he's a That's chef it. he's a an actor yeah. a chef a musician a, an occasional poet yeah uh, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> oh he painted a picture once <laughs> he's an artist I don't know it's yeah, yeah. fine I mean again I don't I, saw, I don't begrudge him his career but no. I am always just a little bit like oh you again the other thing that I know Johnny Flynn for and actually I think this is the thing that has coloured my attitude towards him most at the Cineworlds there was a series of adverts where he would sort of get in the middle of people's nice evenings and be like let's have a tasty debrief at Papa John's uh. <laughs> and it was the most singularly off-putting thing <laughs> 
And I didn't, uh, I didn't really know who, who this guy was. And then all of a sudden he was in movies and I was like, wait, that's the that's that guy from the fucking Cineworld thing. <laughs> and then it was years later that I realised, oh, I actually saw him on stage once and he left no impression. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I don't, I don't get it. Fair anyway, enough. This has been a, a somewhat unkind <laughs> digression on Johnny Flynn. Yeah, um, I know. Who doesn't really deserve that. But uh, yeah, that's what's happened. <laughs> all the best, Johnny. You thought you were going to see an Anthony Hopkins film and you went to see a Johnny Flynn film. Um, and the film itself is... It's kind of fine. It's about, I don't know if you've went viral the uh, video a little while ago. Uh, yeah, footage from uh, an old British TV series called That's Life mm. um, that was hosted by Esther Ranson. And it's about this guy who saved a whole load of people from Czechoslovakia in like just on the outbreak of the war. Mm. And this footage that went viral is from, as I say, this show That's Life, where he's sort of sitting there and Esther Ranson's talking about his life and she's like, and can anybody stand up? who owes their life to this man and like the whole audience gets up and he's like what the fuck and everybody goes oh like you get the hairs yeah yeah my hairs have all gone up just as you say that yeah so yeah well it tells two stories it tells the story of that so the kinder transport operation that Mm. he ran and then the anthony hopkins stuff is him in the 1980s in the run-up to um that's life right so actually weirdly although i went to see an anthony hopkins film the stuff that i didn't need in the film was the anthony hopkins stuff that's the stuff about him getting the credit which actually the footage is still on youtube i watched it the other day and it's it's quite beautiful so so people in reviews people have talked about the 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 climax of bringing people to tears and you know that sort of stuff which it did for me as well that's well staged but also it's an incredible moment that actually it brought me to tears already in the youtube thing and that's more powerful to me because that is real um other than that there's as far as the the stuff in the the 1930s is concerned with johnny flynn it's right it's a little bit rushed sure but there are one or two moments that are quite powerful anyway that's my take on one life well (laughs) what about you what have you been watching um not a right lot um the only thing that we've been watching really since we last spoke um, we've done all four seasons of unforgotten obviously i know there's a fifth season um which we can't access because that's not on Britbox yet but um yeah so we just have absolutely gobbled that up have you seen that the series uh no i don't know anything about it oh it's um it's a it's fantastic it's kind of I thought it was just another sort of generic TV crime thing, but actually it's mm-hmm. really good. It's um, Nicola Walker and Sanjeev Bhaskar playing okay. kind of cold case investigators. Um, oh, yes. And so, yeah, it's it's very formulaic. And each series, you know, a body is discovered somewhere obscure um, and mm. then they go about identifying the body, finding out what happens. And you kind of, the beginning of each series, you, you're sort of introduced to kind of a handful of seemingly disparate figures um, mm. all going about their daily life. And then it's like, how are they all connected? How do they all know each other? How are they all involved in this case in some way? But I think the thing that makes it really stand out is Nicola Walker's performance and her character um, because it's so kind of compassionate. It isn't a series that Liz in any way it's very it's very warm and caring mm-hmm. it's really good I really highly recommend if you want a bit of kind of gritty crime drama Unforgotten is fantastic I mean I'm not the first person to say
say this. I'm about five years late, actually. <laughs> yeah. It, you know what it is? I'd sort of forgotten about that series. I think it's got a really, such a generic title. It is such a generic title. But yeah, once you uh, described it um, with Sanjeev Bashko and Nicola Walker, I was like, oh, that, yes, I have meant to watch it. Because probably the I really like Nicola Walker. Oh, she's so she's good. Great. She has got the most incredible eyes. But also, do you know, I was a little bit like, oh, Sanjeev Bhaskar. I don't know where I got this feeling from that maybe I wasn't that keen. But actually, mm. he's great. He's so great. He's so watchable. Yeah. Like, I love every bit that he was on screen. So, yeah, we've just been watching that, which, I mean, you know, obviously isn't a film. Um, but we have gobbled that up. So that was really great. But, yeah, no, the only thing I've watched um, that's a film is what we're going to talk about today. Excellent. So, shall we crack on? Yeah, let's. <laughs> So, this week, we will be discussing The Wizard of Oz from 1939. The link uh, from the Bad and Beautiful to get us to The Wizard of Oz was the art director Cedric Gibbons. He was the one who had won all of the Oscars when, mm. we, went through, uh, when we went through housekeeping last week. So, do you want to give us a little bit of a synopsis? Yeah, I do. I mean, I haven't practised or anything. I'm just going to talk. No, uh, as is our way. This is how we do things around here. We don't prepare. <laughs> <laughs> so, the film is an hour and 42 minutes, which is a 102 seconds. If you're ready, your time starts now. Dorothy Gale is a, a teenage girl in Kansas in the olden days. I mean, I suppose, I don't know if it is even set in the 30s, but it's set in, you know. Um, and Kansas is a black and white world. She is in rural Kansas, living on a farm. And the film opens with her um, running away from a, a wicked lady who lives nearby who um, wants to hurt her dog, Toto, in some way. And she runs to the farm where she's being cared for by her aunt and uncle. And the aunt and uncle are too busy for her. They don't have time for her because they've got a count the chickens um and then this evil woman turns up and is like I'm, i want to euthanize your dog because it bit me and so she takes the dog away and dorothy is absolutely heartbroken um, and then toto escapes out the basket and comes back and dorothy is like oh no she'll come back and hurt you so they um set off to run away from home um and then she encounters a roadside magician um, and um, fortune teller who tells her she has to go home so she does go home but then there's a tornado oh no so all of the other members of the farm go into the kind of tornado shelter under the ground and Dorothy they don't let Dorothy in when she turns back up so Dorothy goes back into the house to wait it out at which point she cracks her head goes a bit fuzzy and then she uh, the house seemingly is lifted from the floor and spun around in the tornado and then drops down in Oz, which is in Technicolor. Um, so it's a wonderful world. And then she it turns out that the house has fallen on an evil witch. Um, the evil witch's sister turns up and is like, I'd like to take my sister's shoes. And then fucking chaotic meddling bitch Glinda, who is a good witch for some reason, turns up and is like, no, 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 you can't have your dead sister's property. This random teenage girl has got that instead. And the shoes are magic, but I'm not going to tell you how, because I'm a chaotic, messy bitch. Um, and then uh, the munchkins uh, sing some songs at her. And basically she's like, I want to go home. And they all say, you've got to go and see the wizard in the Emerald 
old city. You get there by following the Elibrick Road. So off she goes on the Elibrick Road. She picks up a scarecrow who wants a brain, um, a tin man who wants a heart, and a lion who wants some courage. And off they all go together to the Emerald City, where the wizard is like, um, I will give you what you want, but you've got to destroy the evil witch. So off they go, destroy the evil witch, um, come back, and then the wizard is like, no, I'm still not giving you what they want. And then it turns out he's a massive fraud who's just a human. Um, and so they're going to escape in a balloon. Um, but then he just fucks off because Dorothy wants a dog or whatever it is she wants. Um, and she's left there in Oz um, and is like, oh, no, I can't get home. And then Glinda turns up and is like, <laughs> you could have got home all the time if you just tapped your shoes together. And you're like, Glinda, why didn't you just say that in the first place, you fucking messy bitch um so then she taps her heels off she goes home um and um wakes up in black and white back in kansas everything's fine it was all a dream there's no place like home how long did i talk for god that was ages it was ages was it (laughs) a a minute and 33 seconds you were still in kansas (laughs) (laughs) you you basically you you got to oz just as time was up (laughs) it was it was three minutes and 16 seconds okay it could be worse it could be worse it could be worse um next week whatever it is we're doing next week uh we're going to impose a hard limit on my time synopsis hard limit and we need to impose some sort of penalty listeners could you come up with some ideas for what we could use as our penalty if we go over our time limit anyway uh shall i do a little bit of housekeeping yes please the creditor director is victor fleming there are actually four directors on the wizard of oz so its initial director was richard thorpe who uh, was replaced he was fired after um a couple of weeks of filming um, by Mervyn Leroy, the producer, and he was replaced by George Cukor, who was sort of a placeholder. He ironed out a few of the things. So um, the Richard Thorpe version, just very quickly, uh, had um, in particular, actually, a lot of the design elements were just a bit wrong. So uh, Dorothy was in this blonde wig, so um, blonde wig and this kind of baby doll makeup, and she looked uh, about 17, 18 yeah. And a bit sort of sultry, which isn't really what you want for Dorothy Gale. Um, <laughs> also, the wake up for, makeup for the Wicked Witch was uh, was altered by George Cukor as well. But essentially, Richard Thorpe was fired because uh, he, he was kind of rushing it. And the fantastical elements of the story were kind of being glossed over quite a lot. As um, had happened previously in the uh, silent movie version back in the early 20th century. So, as I say, Richard Thorpe replaced replaced by George Cukor, who um, fixed some of these issues. And then he was replaced by Victor Fleming, who did the bulk of the shoot. But he, towards the end of the shoot, went off to uh, rescue Gone with the Wind Mm -hmm. from the doldrums. Um, And he's the only credited director on Gone with the Wind. But that had a few directors as well. I'm sure we'll get to that one day. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. No, indeed. Um, <laughs> You've already dodged that bullet once, said. It's today I the know, day. I know, I know, it's today the day. So, uh, Victor Fleming uh, left. He was replaced one more time by King Vidor, the marvelously named director King Vidor. I mean, honestly. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. Um, and he reportedly shot most of the Kansas sequences, mm-hmm. uh, including Somewhere of the Rainbow and I believe the Storm sequence as mm-hmm. well. So, it's adapted from the book, The Wonderful. Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum, a classic of American children's literature, which led to, there was a whole series of like 14 books in total, and Mm. then um, other writers have added their own things that aren't always accepted as canon. The writers on it, we've got Noel Langley, uh, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. Another brilliant name. 
Edgar Allan Wolf. Edgar Amazing. Allen Wolf. It's it's like a, a mashup of Edgar Allan Poe and Virginia Woolf. Noel Langley, in addition to uh, being credited with the uh, screenplay, is also credited as having done the adaptation as well. So he was in charge of the overall story. The producer, as we've mentioned, is Mervyn Leroy. Uh, he was actually most known as a director. So he's got some 30-something credits as a producer um, but a lot of his big successes were as a director including he was the director of Gypsy um, the music we're going to talk about the music quite a lot I should think because it's the first musical that we've ever covered on I the know podcast. I know and isn't that lovely uh, so the songs are written by Harold Arland and E.Y. Herberg E.Y. Herberg did the lyrics uh, and Harold Arland provided the music uh, the score itself is by Herbert Stothert but also there are motifs and quotations in there from other composers um, the one that I picked up on was uh, Mazorgsky's Night on Bald Mountain, yes. which uh, is very familiar from Fantasia. So cinematography is provided, uh, provided by Harold Rosson, um, who was also the cinematographer on Singing in the Rain and The Red Badge of Courage. Art director Cedric Gibbons, who we met last week, uh, so I won't go into much detail there. Um, set decorator Edwin B. Willis. Um, we also met him last week. Yes! Uh, so he also was on The Bad and Beautiful. Production design. Uh, so there's three production designers. None of them are credited in the film itself and most of them are credited elsewhere in their careers as art director. So we've got uh, William A. Horning who, as a little sort of connection to last week, shared an Oscar with Edward Carfagno for Ben-Hur. He also shared one um, with F. Keir Gleeson for Gigi. Um, they were both guys who worked on The Bad and Beautiful that we discussed last week. Uh, also Malcolm Brown, who shared with uh, Cedric Gibbons, F. Keir Gleeson and uh, Edwin B. Willis, shared an Oscar for Somebody Up There Likes Me. Again, the studio system, yeah. wheels within wheels, links everywhere, a tangled web. Uh, it's all very incestuous. The other production designer who I thought we could... Uh, have a quick look at is uh, Jack Martin Smith mm. um, he's the more sort of prolific of the three so he worked uh, as an art director on Cleopatra that sort of famously mad production that was and the Fantastic Voyage as well which uh, I would think is some interesting work on that as well he won three Oscars in his career uh, so he won one for Hello Dolly he won one for Fantastic Voyage and he won one for Cleopatra as mentioned that was amongst a whole bunch of other nominations yeah so six further nominations for his art direction work in addition to those three wins so nine in total uh the costume um <laughs> so when when we were uh, discussing Barton Fink, we briefly talked about how Jewish people in Hollywood uh, would change their names. Adrian Adolf Greenberg decided he could do without a surname altogether, and he is credited through his career as Adrian. Fantastic. Yeah, I would think this has to have been the sort of biggest scale production that he ever worked on. But yeah. he had some two hundred odd credits, including uh, on the Philadelphia Story and Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. I was just having a read. Apparently, there's like three and a half thousand costumes for this oh my god like the like just the munchkins yeah um, it was a mad costume job and the makeup we've got to uh, chat a little bit about the makeup because i think i think the makeup is actually i think it's incredible so oh yeah i absolutely agree um, it's amazing that's created by jack dawn who worked as a makeup artist uh, quite prolifically but i don't think he did much sort of character makeup beyond what he did in the wizard of oz and i wonder if that's to do with some of the trouble that they yeah. had 
with a lot of the makeup. The film was made for $2.7 million, and initially at the box office it only took $3 million, um, which was a disappointment. But then it was re-released in 1949, and its total box office take uh, went up to $29.7 million. Mm-hmm. And so its, yeah, its legacy lives on there. Just to put it in context, um, mm-hmm. obviously it cost $2 million in 1939 to make it. Adjusted for inflation, that is just shy of $70 million. Thank you for the maths you're very welcome <laughs> i was very interested in all of the um like what everyone got paid and stuff like that um i was like mm. what does that actually mean so i've done some adjusting for inflation the munchkins got paid a fucking fortune i know right because there's this whole thing about like oh toto the dog got paid more than the munchkins and it's like yeah because the dog got paid an extortionate amount of money like three and a half grand a week adjusted for inflation i was reading um the munchkins got about two and a half grand a week just a little reminder that this is not a maths podcast this is a movie making no. Indeed. Film discussion <laughs> podcast. So <laughs> please carry on, Ed. I interrupted you. So, yeah, a quick look at uh, the Oscars. It was nominated for five Oscars in total uh, Best Picture, Best Art Direction, Best Effects, Special Effects, uh, Best Music Original Song, and Best Music Original Score. Uh, the ones it won uh, were for um, the original song and for the score. Also, um, Judy Garland mm-hmm. won the now defunct, like, juvenile Oscar award. Oh, really? And she called it her Munch award because it was a little the statue was little oh well that's nice (laughs) i know i know so yeah just uh, just a quick look at the cast judy garland plays dorothy gale we've got frank morgan as professor marvel slash the wizard slash the gatekeeper slash um a whole host of uh, people in oz he drives the carriage with a horse with a different color all sorts of stuff yeah Uh, we've got ray bulger who plays hunk and the Scarecrow. Bert La, who plays Zeke and the Cowardly Lion. We've got Jack Haley, who plays Hickory and the Tin Man. Uh, we've got Margaret Hamilton, the marvellous Margaret Hamilton, who plays Miss Gulch and the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, we've got Billy Burke, who plays uh, Glinda of the North. I refuse to call her the Good Witch, because um, my feelings towards Glinda are similar towards the, uh, similar to yours. Um, <laughs> messy bitch! Messy bitch! <laughs> <laughs> absolute nightmare! Um, we've got uh, Charlie Grapewin plays Uncle Henry. Clara Blandick plays Auntie M. Terry plays Toto. And um, the Munchkins are credited as the Singer Midgets. <laughs> yeah. Which was, they, they were... Uh... That was quite a standard thing as well for, I can't remember what they're called, but there was a gang of quote unquote sort of street kids were kind of contract, they were under contract to a studio. I can't remember if it was MGM or not, but if you weren't a star in your own right, you could be part of like a gang of people and then you as a unit would appear in things as a unit. Um, I just want to uh, make sure everybody knows for clarity that it's not us calling them the Singer Midgets. No, <laughs> that is what they were credited as. So it was Leopold von Singer was the manager of this entertainment troupe called Singer's Midgets. Lovely. I think that's housekeeping in the bag. Lovely. Thank you. So <laughs> I'm fascinated. Uh, because when we finished recording the last episode, you sort of said to me in very hushed tones, you said, Ed, I, I think I might hate The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> um, so ever since that moment, I've been like, oh, oh, how, how are we going to feel? Uh, you said you said you had this impression of it as being um, uh, saccharine. Mm-hmm. And I just want to know uh, how you feel about it now. Well, I'd only ever seen The Wizard of Oz once in full from start to finish. Obviously, a lot of the imagery and stuff is kind of ingrained in my brain because of its status in our kind of cultural landscape. But mm-hmm. um, 
in terms of sitting down and watching it from start to finish all the way through, I'd only done that once when I was about 15, maybe, because I was going to play Dorothy in our school production of The Wizard of Oz. So I thought I should watch it. So I was like, okay, I need to make sure that I untangle my kind of icky feelings about having been a teenager from Mm -hmm. the experience of actually sitting and watching this film. Be generous, separate out the ick just watch the film. And I have to say, Ed, I was surprised by how much I hated it. Um, (laughs) It's, um, I really, really, really loathe it. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk with you about it because since I watched it about a week ago, Mm. I have been desperately trying to analyse and unpick exactly what it is about it that I find so loathsome. And I am finding it difficult because there's quite a lot of things where the version of the thing in The Wizard of Oz that I find loathsome, the kind Mm. of equivalent of that in something like Singing in the Rain, I find delightful and charming. So it's like, what is it? Was what is it about the Wizard of Oz that is that gr- it, like it grates on my central nervous system? So that's where I am. What about you? <laughs> Fantastic. Well, um, I really like it. Yeah, really sure. Like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my history of the film is very different to yours. Yeah, I, I I had it on video as a kid, and like it wasn't one of my most watched. Mm. Um, although actually, probably early childhood, it, it was it mm. was quite quite regularly consumed. I would think. Because I'd I'd not watched it in a long time, and when it when it started, I got so excited for the just the the MGM logo, the lion mm. in the thing doing the roar and, and in that sepia tone. I was like, ah, oh, Wizard of Oz, yes, mm. sort of little little injection of childhood nostalgia. Yeah, and then, yeah, I just had a big smile on my face throughout. Yeah, I think it's a cold, cold heart that can't be warmed by the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> uh, it's a sharp <laughs> flint. <laughs> No, I, 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 uh, it's weird. I, I can, I was reading loads of articles about it because I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and get into the mindset of someone who loves this film to try and, and hope maybe it'll help coax out the love from me. And like, I get it. I understand why people, well, no, do I understand why people love it? I understand why all of the component parts should add up to a really lovely, gorgeous film. But mm. when I watch it, I'm like, I don't get how people aren't irritated by this. It's like gross, <laughs> lurid, and gross. Um... It's just, when, so when I, when I was watching it, there was a bit in the back of my mind that was going, "Have a look at this through Gould's eyes. What's, what's, what's she going to be seeing?" Um, and so having, having having thought about what, what you'd said um, last week, I was like, "Oh yeah, no, I can I can absolutely see her hating this." Yeah. Okay. Why? Why do you, Why do I hate it? All right. So what what you said about it being saccharine? I don't think that. That's untrue. It isn't as true but as I was worried it would be. I think, well, because I th- the the saccharine is actually it's undercut by two things. One of those things is actually there there is I think some real stuff going on underneath the performances. Also, I think it's undercut by just how abrasively weird a lot of it is. So all that stuff, um, which we'll come on to in Munchkinland when she first gets to Oz, like that is so sweet, so, so sweet that it, it tips over into kind of, uh, into almost being horror. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. there's something kind of dystopian about it. And again, at the Emerald City, there's something kind of dystopian about it. It's it's weird. Like the the the, the Munchkins' voices and their appearance. I've, I find the Munchkins really sort of upsetting to look at. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
absolutely. I, f- yeah, I find yeah. them impossible to, to look at. I can't look. The makeup combined with the effect that they've put on their voices that is mm-hmm. so... Those weird hairdos. It's uncanny. That is always an interesting area. But you yeah. see, I don't think that there is a single sharp edge in this film. It's like... No? No, I really don't. It's like... Because it's it's so American. And I mean that in terms of it's like, you know, L. Frank Baum. He wanted to write an American fairy tale. He wanted to take the kind of vague idea of the sort of European fairy tale, you know, the Brothers Grimm and all of this stuff. Mm. The, exactly the um, the canon of work that Disney then would go on to draw so much, I say inspiration, loose inspiration from. Um, mm. And again, he sanded out all of the, the sharp edges when it came to putting together his work. But um, The Wizard of Oz, you know, L. Frank Baum wanted to make something that was very, very American. It was about the kind of um, plucky American can-do spirit, American values. And in doing so, I think he has robbed it of any darkness. <laughs> and and that to me, that's the interesting stuff. That's where dilemma and conflict and interesting things start to happen. And mm. to me, this is not, there. Are, there is no actual conflict. There's a few gestures towards it maybe beginning to feel a bit like it. And I have to say, one of the bits that I did find really moving is when the sand is dripping through that timer and Dorothy is waiting, is waiting for death and she starts crying. And I was like, this I think is great. This is really yes. beautiful. And she's wonderful in that moment, but she's so irritating for the rest of the film that I can't... (laughs) She grates on me so hard from the second she appears on screen and is fussing over Toto going like oh Toto poor nasty woman is gonna it's a fuck off and she turns up at the farm (laughs) turns up at the farm bothering Auntie M and Uncle whatever he's called and it's like falling in the pigsty falling in the pigsty (laughs) and part of it is Dorothy is she's at that age where she's too young to be babied but she's not Mm. quite old enough to be able to entertain herself and um, her aunt and uncle who've taken her in have not got time to think about her in the moment that she wants their attention the whole dream that she has about Oz and I do think it's a dream is about her desperately needing to place herself at the centre of the universe at the centre and it's like she dreams that she goes to Oz and it's not only that she is loved and cared about it's that she is the saviour of the whole fucking land she is the most singularly most important person in the whole of that landscape and that's about teenage anxiety I think desperately needing to be wanted cared about needed respected all of that stuff which is something that she clearly is not getting um, Mm. from her primary caregivers at home so I kind of I feel like there's a really interesting thing going on there but Mm. what I get from it is like shut the fuck up Dorothy like get a fucking like fuck off they need to count their baby chickens well we've uh, yeah we've finally hit on a film that we've uh, got a real a real disagreement about I know. Well, apart from Saltman <laughs> well actually to be honest I don't disagree with anything that you've just said except I I don't find Dorothy irritating yeah. as a presence I, I, I find yeah, there, there are there are times when she breaks my heart uh, yeah uh, yeah yeah I see that and I get her longing this journey that she goes on to realising that home is where the heart is and all that actually quite conservative stuff Mm -hmm. I buy her performance Should we have a little chat about the production itself because it's it's sort of a famously bonkers 
um, yeah. production. The, the first thing to talk about when so the we touched briefly on um, the original director mm. Richard Thorpe. So when he left the production was around about the same time that they recast the Tin Man. It was originally Buddy Ebsen. Buddy Ebsen. Well, actually, it was originally Ray Bolger was going to oh, be Tin yeah, Man, yeah. and uh, Buddy Ebsen was going to be playing the Scarecrow. Mm. Uh, but Ray Bolger desperately wanted to play the Scarecrow. Because um, one of his inspirations for getting into vaudeville in the first place um, was seeing a performance on stage of the Scarecrow, ah, and that was that was a, a big deal for him, and so he lobbied quite hard for the change. And um, Buddy had no issues with swapping roles, so they did. But then Buddy Epson had a, a very serious toxic reaction. He was basically poisoned by the aluminium dust in the makeup that he was wearing as the Tin Man. And he was hospitalised, was quite seriously ill. So he had to leave the production. Yeah, uh, that was when they brought in Jack Haley. So yeah, that that was the first thing. And that sort of shut production down for a little while. And actually, uh, Jack Haley sings on two of the songs. Mm. Uh, if Only Had a Heart, that's Jack Haley. And there's one other thing that he's singing. I can't remember what that is now. Um, but any other time the Tin Man is heard singing, it's Buddy Ebsen. It's still him on um, We're Off to See the Wizard is is Buddy Ebsen, isn't it? And um, yeah. Um, do you want to just hear my quick little Disney connection. Oh, please, yes. So um, there is a Disney cameo in If I Only Had a Heart. Um, when you hear a female voice sing Wherefore Art Thou Romeo, that is Disney Snow White. Oh, is it? That is <laughs> the voice of Adriana Casalotti, who voiced Snow White for Disney in 37. Do I mean 37 or do I mean 39? But um, yeah, and she was paid $1,000 um, for that one little singing line, which in modern money is about three and a half grand. Ooh, nice. Um, sorry, can I just <laughs> say that again? Because I got that wrong. Oh, okay. Uh, which in today's money is about 25 grand. Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> Well, well, I never. <laughs> I know. That's fun. Yeah, no, I, it's it's a, it's a weird moment that when the voice sort of comes in, this disembodied voice, like, oh, where's that come from? I love Jack Haley's singing voice as the Tin yeah? Man. Yeah, I get that. Like my my favorite song in the film is "If I Only Had a Brain," and yeah, I I love actually I love everything about Ray Bolger's performance as this guy. Yeah, Kirk. yeah, yeah. He's so warm. His physicality just knocks me out. Like every shot, he's he's falling out. He's lolloping all over the place. He's yeah, falling out. he's yeah. got no. Bones, the man. He's so fluid. He's great. You can see that sort of vaudeville performer in him there. And that it was part part of his argument when he um, uh, when he was lobbying mm. to play the scarecrow was um, I'm I'm fluid. I'm a fluid performer. I'm not I'm not I'm not tin. I'm not made of tin. Mm. I'm fluid. Yeah. I love that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, a couple of other production things you maybe want to talk about. There's a lot of makeup issues. There's a lot of makeup issues. There was a quite serious accident with uh, Margaret Hamilton, uh, where the so that that bit where there's the the burst of fire and she disappears. The first take went fine. The second take, the fireball went off early and it set fire to her makeup, and she was hospitalised with uh, third degree burns and oh. was couldn't come back to the shoot for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah, really dreadful. That's nasty. Um, the makeup had copper in it, the green makeup. It's incredible to think of that now. The other um, little makeup thing is Ray Bulger's makeup for the Scarecrow, which I think is my favourite bit of makeup. It's incredible it's makeup. Like the effect is amazing. But it, apparently, it took an hour to peel it all off at the end of the day, and after a while, it just it left permanent lines around his mouth. So there there were there were issues with the makeup, and I don't know for sure, but it's possibly why Jack Dawn didn't do much 
uh, that sort of character makeup in sort of subsequent. Work. I suppose it's that thing, isn't it? Like I've said, oh, the makeup's fantastic, and it is. It is mm. fantastic. It's a fantastic makeup effect visually. But can you really call a makeup effect fantastic if it is, you know, the scarecrow makeup was still visible on his face a year after filming finished? Mm-hmm. You know, um, it set fire to one of the leading performers. Yeah. Another one, it <laughs> hospitalised a previous actor to the point where they had to drop out of the film. You know, mm. can you really say that it was that successful? Well, I don't know. All, all we have today is the visuals. It's true. And they are amazing. <laughs> and they are splendid. But yeah, no, you are absolutely right. The well-being of your performance is paramount. I don't know. There's so, there's so much sort of production-wise that we could go into. There's a story about Victor Fleming slapping Judy Garland yeah. on set because she, she wouldn't stop laughing yeah. at uh, Bert Lahr as the, as the lion. I was like, <gasps> about that, that he took her to one side and slapped her and said, get a grip, go and do your job, go to work. And then apparently after that happened, he was like, he gathered everyone around. He was like, that was awful, terrible, boorish behaviour I'm really really sorry please will everyone come and punch me on the nose and they all did but then Judy Garland kissed him on the nose instead which is quite (laughs) nice not an excuse for slapping a 16 year old girl but you know yes indeed yeah the the other thing to probably talk about briefly is the the behaviour of the munchkins Mm -hmm. um, which is sort of famous bawdy and (laughs) and drunk all the time and constantly (laughs) feeling up Judy Garland and yeah they were apparently a fucking nightmare the munchkins and there were so many of them <laughs> quite a wholesome <laughs> bit though apparently they um there were like an abnormal number of um like marriages as a result like a lot oh. of them met their future partners and spouses and stuff um, nice. on on the set which is really lovely but i love the idea yeah. that they were all just smashed <laughs> <laughs> yeah all just smashed and fucking yeah it's like it's like you hear about the olympics like yeah when, yeah when all these sort of hormonal young people from around the world these incredibly competitive fit you know with their hormones up they all come together from around the world and just fuck, fuck. in their olympic villages ah, crazy crazy times Amazing. Um, <laughs> so yeah there's that there's also there's uh, there's there's a couple of a uh, couple of legends and apocryphal things yeah um that's worth talking about uh one that we've got to mention very quickly is <laughs> there's a legend that in the background of one of the shots you can yeah. see a, a dead dead person hanging you can't it's it's a bird yeah <laughs> the other the other one that i wanted to note so the um that sort of tatty jacket that the wizard wears yeah the tatty, tatty coat that was picked off a rack of charity shop coats and there's a legend that he found a, a little note in one of the pockets that it had belonged to l frank baum there is absolutely no evidence that that's true and it's a rumor that was put about by the studio it's a lovely bit of like ooh movie magic yeah. I mean, the chances of that being true are very, very, very minimal, but it's nice to imagine that that might happen. Oh, um, we were talking before about kind of how the, the makeup was generally speaking all quite damaging, toxic, dangerous and uh, Mm. dreadful. But one slightly delightful bit of makeup trivia that I found was that the way that they made the horses of changing colour, what are they called? Uh, The horse of a different colour. Horse of a different Mm colour. They painted the horse with gelatin powder and they had to shoot it really fast because the horses would just lick it off. (laughs) (laughs) I think that sequence is, uh, yeah, it's amazing. I don't think anybody had ever seen anything quite like that before. Vibrant. And yeah. There's so much about this film that is designed to show off the technicolor. You know, the um the ruby slippers actually mm. were silver 
um, until they made the decision to do Technicolor and they were like, well, we need to really show off this incredible technology. And it is, it is, I mean, obviously completely iconic. And I do think that the Technicolor is astonishing. It looks amazing, but I hate the design. Um, I appreciate how incredible it is, but mm. I personally really hate the aesthetic. Um, mm. I think what, what I will say is that everything that I hate about this film, which is most mm. of it, I understand that that is entirely based on my personal taste. Like I don't objectively, I don't think it's a bad film. It's not that I think that I'm right and the rest of the world is wrong. I just... <laughs> It doesn't sit right with you. It really grates. It makes me grind my teeth. It, everything that I'm about to say about it <laughs> is entirely based on my personal taste. And to our one listener out there who agrees with me, you're not alone. <laughs> so um, as far as the sort of production design elements that you're not really getting on board with, how would you compare it to a much later film that I think actually exists in a, a similar uh, production design sphere uh actually i, I rewatched recently because it was on the telly um hook ah uh, yeah i think that the production design of hook is fairly ghastly as well <laughs> sure i get I, yeah i get where you're coming from and i do wonder how different i would feel about the wizard of oz if it had been a film that was part of my childhood mm-hmm. but it just wasn't it wasn't yeah. a film that i ever watched because i also find the sound of music entirely loathsome and i find there's quite Ooh. like there's so much that i find i, I hate mary poppins what <laughs> um do, do you do you have an issue with musicals do you do you not no like musicals? no i like musical oh, well no I, no I, generally speaking i'm not a massive fan of musicals but mm. it depends what it is but there are, there are exceptions so it's like generally you're not keen on musicals but there are exceptions i like i love singing in the rain singing in the rain is one of my favorite films because i think that there is something to do with the musical numbers the, the spectacle of the dancing, I think, is mm-hmm. quite an important part for me. I love the musical Chicago. I think it's fantastic. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm not keen. And you're not... Yeah, um, but, yeah. <laughs> like, I've tried really hard with quite a lot of musicals, and I just don't... I think it has to be a perfect combination of singing, dancing, and spectacle all has to be fantastic. And part of my issue with yeah. The Wizard of Oz is that, like, the songs are, generally speaking, to me, I think the songs are a bit shit, and there's no real dancing in it i find the story quite limp and the stakes really low so i'm a little bit like this is just gaudy fluff actually (laughs) my tolerance for kind of the sort of shenanigans that go on in family films i'm just a bit like yeah yeah i I think i think i I, I'm, i'm getting a sort of picture of what you don't like in terms of production design like because uh, go, going back to uh, our chat about dick tracy you really hated the design on that i really hated it yeah i really hated it yeah so the sort of brightly colored like clearly sort lurid. of artificial lurid aesthetics mm. you're, you're not you're just not keen on I think it's one of the most iconic movies uh, that's ever been yeah. made. And uh, that that's a word that I don't like to use very often mm. because I think it's a word that gets really overused and, and it's been weakened to the yes. point of being almost meaningless. You know, oh, this pot noodle is iconic. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the design of a pot noodle is technically iconic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, you what, know you what I mean. mean. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the Wizard of Oz birthed so many culturally significant things, um, both in terms of imagery, 
uh, in terms of concepts and in terms of songs. Uh, but what I decided the best way in actually would be to look at it through the through the filter of the songs. First song uh, I want to chat about, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, mm. uh, which goes hand in hand with the uh, Dorothy's life in Kansas and the mm. farm life. So what what's, what's, what's that song about? What, what are we doing here? Well, Somewhere Over the Rainbow is an iconic song and it is, I certainly don't think it's the first example, but in terms of like the roots of what we would consider to be the modern musical, it is, it's the I Want song. Song. It's yeah. the song that the uh, the protagonist delivers so that we get a window into how she feels about her life now, what she wants to achieve, um, and kind of to foreshadow the journey that she's going to go on. And it is a song about how the grass is greener on the other side. And also, uh, one of the things that I sort of picked up on much more when I watched it this time was how much Somewhere Over the Rainbow is not, it's not about wanting a better life. It's about wanting a life free from care free from mm. worry I mean it was almost cut which I think is really interesting that yeah. was the song that they nearly chopped out of it which is unthinkable really because it is I mean that has been the song that has gone on to be the most famous it's one of the most famous things about the film they did cut a kind of um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow reprise from the section where Dorothy's trapped in the witch's castle which was going to be a oh, much right. darker much more sinister version of Over the Rainbow and apparently mm. it was it was recorded live on set and all of the cast and crew were in floods of tears oh wow while it was made and then they cut it i would love to see that song because mm. um i wonder if the footage exists anywhere i mean what do you think mm. of it as a song do you like it it's so difficult to uh, yeah to get a sort of objective view on the song itself her, her performance of it is i mean she's just such such a gorgeous voice i think she, she has yeah. got a gorgeous voice yeah she does and that's what got her the job because the um the they originally wanted shirley temple for the role and mm. um the fact that shirley temple couldn't sing it was one of the reasons that they then went to Judy Garland who had a kind of you know eat from being a teeny tiny little kid in her I think um, they were called the Gum family or the Gum sisters or something. The, oh, right. the troupe, she was in a, a sort of vaudeville troupe with her sisters. Um, mm. And then she kind of was extracted from that as having this kind of extraordinary voice um, and changed her name and all of this kind of stuff. So it was for that song that they cast Judy Garland and then they almost cut it. I'm a bit like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because she doesn't really get to do an awful lot of other singing, really, Judy Garland in this film. No, that's true. Um, yeah, it's sort of well, it became a signature song anyway. Yeah, it's a sort of show-stopping number. So the 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 context that it appears in, so it's sort of depression era. Times are tough on the farm. Uh, there's something wrong with the incubator, so they're going to lose all their chicks. Shit's hard, and Dorothy's sort of at that annoying age, where, as you say, where she isn't really old enough to look after herself properly, and you know, and she's not really old enough to help out either. But she's at an age where she wants to be doing stuff. Like she's got she's got no friends other than yeah. Toto. There's, there's nobody her age. Yeah. So when it comes to the song, there's there. I think there's a whole bunch of stuff in there about longing for better times, just to be somewhere. Yeah, free from care, but also just free and out in the world as mm. well. When she runs away and she meets Professor Marvel, and I I, I love that scene. I think it's it's uh, really yeah yeah it's good. Which when I watched it as a kid went completely over my head like all that stuff when he's looking in the crystal ball and he's um, making up all that stuff that uh, about Auntie M clutching her chest uh, falling into the bed and, and all of that that he's making up 
to get her to go home. When I watched it as a kid, I sort of just took that as face value. Right, yeah. Um, She's got to get home and EM's in trouble. But I think watching it now, it's a great depiction of cold read in that section. Yeah, yeah. But also I think it's quite a, um, it's it's a scene that is without anything sinister going on because clearly this bloke Mm. is like, this young girl needs to go home and he contrives in the gentlest way possible to send her home. It's quite wholesome, that scene. It is. Yeah, it's really wholesome. Like in in a different film, he would be quite a predatory character. Oh God, (laughs) He'd be like, like, oh no, we don't we don't like this guy at all. But as he says later on, when he's the wizard, oh no, I'm a very good man. I'm mm. just a bad wizard. Um, so here we've got this charlatan. I mean, we presume makes his living bilking people. Yeah, absolutely. But he does he does a good thing. Yeah, one of the things that he says when she first first arrives and when he first meets her is, oh, you want to see other lands and do other things. And there is an element of that as well. She's bored. She's bored. She's trouble on the farm. You know, she's walking on the fence and falling in the pigsty. She's causing mischief here. There and everywhere, really. Um, she's in the way. And it's because she's bored. She's not old enough to help out and have like any real responsibility but she's got nobody to play with so it's it's a, it's a longing for, for something more interesting she's got this sort of spirit of adventure in this section we also meet the Kansas versions of the other characters that we'll meet later in Oz the first one to talk about is probably <laughs> Miss Gulch who is Elmira Gulch Mm. which I think is such a fabulous name. Uh, is that one for the Spice of Love Joy Hall of Fame? Oh, yes, absolutely, definitely. She's going in. I'll just add that <laughs> to my list. <laughs> Marvellous. And, I, and we've said already, Margaret Hamilton's so good in this movie. She's got no qualms about just being foul. Yeah, sort of really from her first from her first appearance at the farm. While at the same time, there's this lovely... She, so she sort of barges away onto the farm, mm. talks to Uncle Henry, who's really feckless mm-hmm. um yeah she's sort of all prim and proper and having a go about the dog biting her and but then the gate just hits her in the ass and it's this long <laughs> where she just sort of registers it and then carries on and then you get that scene where she takes toto and i remember that really really upsetting me as a kid there's a bunch of stuff that when i watched it as a kid upset me when you did your synopsis you said that she wanted to euthanize toto well it's not the word she uses destroy yeah i'll have him destroyed and between uh, that word and judy garland's reaction as Dorothy and Aunt Em and feckless Uncle Henry and their sort of reaction as well but then oh there's nothing we can do the law says into the basket you go I remember that really upsetting me Mm, as a child yeah I'm not surprised um, I think as with anything that I have a problem with I'm always trying to fix it so I'm trying to <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting here thinking okay if I was going to rewrite The Wizard of Oz and remake mm-hmm. The Wizard of Oz into the version that I wanted what would my version be and my instinct is always to go for the let's see it from the bad character's point of view which of course is what happened with and I mean I know we'll come on to this probably more when we talk about the sort of legacy of The Wizard of Oz but there is um, obviously the stage musical Wicked which yeah. is a prequel to The Wizard of Oz but it recasts Glinda and and the Wicked Witch, they kind of look at them as teenagers and all the way through. And you, you, the second half of the musical Wicked is basically the behind the scenes of The Wizard of Oz. So mm. Dorothy kind of appears as a character, but you only ever see her feet or you see her silhouette and all that stuff. And so my thing is like, okay, Miss Gulch, she's despised by everybody. Part of that is, I mean, she's a prickly person, but most of that is to do with the fact that she is a wealthy landowner and she goes around on her bicycle and if we're, you know, this is set during the 30s and all that kind of stuff, that's not really something that women were supposed to be doing, going around on the bicycles. They were worried that um, a woman on a bicycle would uh, be too sexually stimulated and then become unreasonable. Um, (laughs) And the bite 
happens off screen. We aren't sh- we aren't shown the truth of that. So for all we That's know, true. Toto has bitten this woman. <laughs> oh, yeah, I absolutely believe he has. Yeah, like, he's bitten like, this woman. Uh, like, Dorothy doesn't deny it. So this woman's just been bitten by a dog yeah. and then sassed by this fucking intolerable teenager. <sighs> and she rocks up and yet yeah, she doesn't handle it in the best way because, you know, she's not a nice person, quote unquote. She's but she's not, she's not, <laughs> she's a dickhead, but she's not in the wrong. I mean, she she is and she is. So Toto has bitten her, but what sort of bite is it? Did he sink his teeth in? Was yeah, it a yeah, nip? Yeah. What, well, you know, exactly. We don't know. She's definitely a wrong'un. Everything screams wrong'un, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It does. Everything in this film is like coded for you to take away the message that the wholesome, all-American life on the farm, that's the right way to be. And it is wrong to be power-hungry or greedy. And all the characters who defy that message of the American way being the best way, they are all, like, evil or bad. Something that struck me, all of the powerful characters in this film are women. Um, I include Aunt Em in that. She bosses the farm. She's absolutely in charge. Uncle Henry's feckless. The three farmhands are kind of useless yeah. uh, to varying degrees. Dorothy, I include, obviously, she's very powerful in Oz. I disagree. You don't, you don't You don't. think Dorothy's powerful in Oz? She's assumed to be a witch when she arrives. Yes, she is powerful because that's the way she is perceived by everybody, but she actually has no power at all. Everything is a total accident. Um, so her power is not earned or sought or any of that stuff, which I do think makes her different, slightly different. I think that the, the, the women in places of power, either they are definitely evil, like the Witch of the West, the Mm. Witch of the East, Miss Gulch, or they are in some way sort of transgressive because I don't think that anybody could look at what Glinda does and see pure goodness there. Like, Glinda is definitely a problematic character and I think she probably would have been then because there is this question of why didn't you just fucking tell her that to begin with? Well, because she had to learn. (sighs) She had to to really want it. (laughs) Whereas I think Dorothy is the protagonist but she is also held up on a pedestal of the way that you ought to conduct yourself and Mm. that is to not seek power, not desire power, uh, but be gracious when power is bestowed upon you. If you dare to want more than your little homestead, regret it immediately and put everything into getting back there and then be grateful when you're there. I kind of disagree. Yeah, sure. Because I think, so Dorothy has a different kind of power. When she meets her friends in Oz, she's in charge. She's the one who stands up to the Cowardly Lion. She's the one yeah. who stands up to the wizard. She's the one who stands up to the witch. She she has a power that she has learned from her aunt on the farm. It's not bestowed on her, I don't think. There is a power that is kind of bestowed on her. There's a sort of, there's a status that's bestowed mm, on her. Mm. But there's a status that's bestowed on the wizard. And I don't think the wizard is powerful. The wizard is no, he's not. kind of useless and he's hiding. Whereas Dorothy doesn't hide. Should we come on to the trip to Oz? That storm sequence is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. It's just, it looks phenomenal and as a feat. Also, bearing in mind that everything in this film, with the exception of the opening credits where you see Sky, everything is on a set, is built, is constructed. There is nothing that is shot on location in this film. But it was quite common back then. You know, they, they had these huge sound stages and they'd build these enormous sets and yeah particularly for these sort of big lavish musicals i think location shoots were uh, were a lot Very harder rare. and more costly okay 
a big question mm-hmm. I want to ask. Yeah. Is there any doubt that it's a dream? Taken in isolation, I don't think there can be any doubt that it's a dream. Yeah. But I think that is sort of retconned by subsequent law. So taken as a standalone story, everything, as far as I'm concerned, points to it's a dream. Which I think even as a kid, I was like, oh, you know what I mean? Oz doesn't exist. I, fe- I remember feeling that way at the end of quite a few stories for different reasons. So I know um, Matilda. Roald Dahl's Matilda which I love when at the end of Matilda she's in a different class and she's not got powers anymore because she's using her brain in a different way oh but she had powers and that was cool <laughs> you know what I mean so I've, I've, yeah and I've, I've, I felt that way about about the end of The Wizard of Oz as a kid for sure because I don't, I don't want it to be a dream yeah yeah I want it to be a place that exists but I think a subsequent law the fact that the the f- book spawned a whole series suggests yeah. further trips and all that sort of stuff and indeed return to oz she goes back to oz and uh, well she she's at the start of return to oz she's in a mental institution oh really yeah oh i you'd like return to oz I, okay it's a lot darker great okay particularly the stuff before she actually returns to oz there are so many motifs and so much iconography that she encounters in oz that is stuff that she encountered just before she was knocked out yeah yeah be it you know the the characters that look the same as the people that she knew at home or you know stuff like seeing aunt m in a crystal ball you know that's something that she had just encountered before She's she was knocked out it. like half an hour before she was knocked out probably and like when the Wicked Witch takes Toto, she puts him into a basket that's yeah. identical to the one Miss Gulch does. And I think this is part of one of the reasons why the film sticks a little bit with me. You know how when someone's had a dream that they think's really interesting and then they tell you about the dream and it's intolerable to have to sit and listen to the dream, them tell you their mm-hmm. dream. I mean, it's kind of interesting from a psychological point of view, maybe, but that's about as much as it can go. For me, yeah. that's what the whole of The Wizard of Oz is. It's someone telling you their fever dream. <laughs> which is interesting for about the first i don't know couple of minutes of them explaining mm. it but then she carries on telling you for like an hour and mm. it's like if you had to sit and listen to someone explain their dream to you in agonizing detail for an hour you'd want to slam your face into the wall and that's what this film makes me feel like <laughs> wow <laughs> I, I've, I've never i've never i've never looked at it in that uh from that angle before because um, the whole of the way i think to me it's so obvious that it's a dream because she knocks herself out she goes all woozy and then she looks out the window she sees miss gulch cycling along on her bike and then she turns into the wicked witch which is an amazing effect that you know the effect of her looking out the window from inside the cyclone and there's all the people going past and all that stuff it's an amazing effect it's so wonderful so many of the scenes if i just look at that one little clip completely out of context i'm like this is phenomenal this is amazing it's when you add it all together as a piece of storytelling that I hate it like actually I'm so sorry Ed because I know that this is one of your favourite parts but all of the if I only had a whatever songs I find really loathsome there is so much of this film that's just Dorothy standing to one side Mm. and reacting to something interesting happening but it isn't even very interesting it's her looking on in wonder and amazement as somebody does a shit dance like (laughs) so the house lands in Oz you get one of the most famous shots in cinema history which we have to talk about that moment where she opens the door on Oz Um, so that, that shot everything inside the house was painted in sepia mm. and there's a stand-in uh, for Dorothy who is the one who opens the door 
in the first place and she's in dressed in sepia and yeah i guess with some sort of sepia makeup on and then she opens it and you see this glorious technicolor land beyond the door and it's i think it's a wonderful effect like if, if you put yourself in in the position of that audience like the gasp that will have gone mm. up oh the the other thing i really like about it, actually when, when the house lands there's silence and she well she, she gives a little oh which i quite like <laughs> uh, when it lands uh, but then there's just there's complete silence there's no score there's no ambient sound and that's i think the first time in the movie that there has been silence and it's really earned and you go oh you feel ah something is different Mm. here Uh, so she steps out into oz and meets the munchkins which i i said i find them really upsetting to look at and listen to yeah yeah i think i think they're hellish um (laughs) Uh, but also the um i think glinda is very tied up in in that Mm. because she meets glinda first who appears in a bubble and it's again a wonderful effect but glinda is so annoying and her song is rancid you know that come out come out wherever you are and it's very typical of the aesthetic they were aiming for at the time which is uh, they you know and it's the same in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves that singing style which is supposed to mimic um like European off but it's horrid (laughs) I really hate it and then the munchkins all turn up and they sing and they've got this awful effect on their voice and it's like it's it's horrible it's yeah I don't know that it was the intention but it it is grating and it's weird um I've I've written here in my notes uh Glinda the Witch of the North can most Mostly fuck off. Yes. <laughs> As can the munchkins. Um. Yeah. <laughs> From a design point of view, everything in that first section of Munchkinland is there to dazzle you with the incredible Technicolor. You know, um, the, the design of all the costumes and the number of performers that there are. It's overwhelming. But it also features one of my least favourite elements of anything, really, which is pointless shenanigans, which is like, you know, they do the whole We Welcome You to Munchkinland song and then they've yes. got the they're called the Lullaby League who come on and do their uh-huh. little bit and they've got the Lollipop Guild who come on and do their little bit I can't be doing with little vignettes <laughs> of nonsense for no reason and it's not a pleasing song they don't do a good dance it's like I'll keep coming back to Singing in the Rain because it's not that far in the future that Singing in the mm. Rain is released and that again features incredible Technicolor and it's wonderful um, but in that there's quite a lot of absolutely unconnected pointless things I'm thinking of Donald O'Connor doing the make them laugh sequence. I'm thinking of the entire Broadway melody sequence, which goes on for a very long time and has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. But both of those feature unbelievable dance routines like Mm. that have gone down in history is it's like watching a piece of like world-class athleticism and Mm. skill whereas this is just like a shit song with Mm. some people stepping backwards and forwards for no reason (laughs) yeah i mean it's i understand i understand why you're comparing it to singing in the rain but it's it's not a fair comparison it's not a fair comparison because it's they're, they're trying to do two very different things i appreciate that yeah i know it isn't fair i'm not being fair ed <laughs> my esteemed wife at this point when i was watching with her last night she said it looks like a welsh fever dream <laughs> um, 
What do you mean? She's like, well, there's a bunch of them look like they're in um, traditional Welsh garb. It's like sort of yeah, traditional they, those, yeah. that Welsh. And I was like, ah, oh, it's the uh, Istefa. Do you know, and it did, it made me think there is something about it that looks like kind of traditional Bavarian outfits, like yeah. lederhosen and, um, and dirndls and all that kind of thing. And I think that's interesting because they are like, in terms of its values and its storytelling, it is very much trying to distance itself from kind of European folklore and fairy tale. Mm-hmm. But then it is also referencing that so much in the kind of um the costumes of the munchkins the um a lot of the kind of forest stuff when they get into the kind of deep dark woodland with lions and tigers and bears oh my all of that stuff um obviously witches in the witch's castle is very mm. european in style yeah it's a kind of conflicted well, thing there I, I i don't think it is a conflicted thing because i think it's actually oz is an exotic land that she spends the whole time trying to get back to Midwestern America from. She spends um, the whole film trying to get away from it, doesn't so she? So it's like she goes to Europe and wants to get back to the States as quickly as she yeah, can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I totally agree um, with you there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, the big number here, I would say, well, there's there's a couple. You've got Follow the Yellow Brick Road, but oh, uh, the big number mm. that I want to sort of highlight in this section is Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. That song has become Margaret Thatcher dying. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, it's it's completely recast that song for me now. Yeah. And probably a lot of people. And you know what? It'll be used again in a similar way in the future for somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite unkind, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I, want, I wonder what she did. I want to know, mm. because Munchkin Lang looks pretty nice. Nice. Wouldn't um, want to live there myself. Well, no, it would be like living at Port Merion. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like Muppet <laughs> Hobbiton. <laughs> a little bit of Muppet Hobbiton, but with a slightly kind of circus feel, like sideshow. Yeah, there's uh, yeah, there's, there's there's a sort of there's a streak of the American Carnival sideshow that runs all the way through this film, um, from meeting Professor Marvel at the start, right through the casting of all the vaudeville performers, as we've mentioned the. A troop of little people, singers, midgets, mm. as they are called, all the way up to the wizard himself with his hot air balloon. Well, it's even 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 after that, with a hot air balloon doing the, the fair and doing that sort of carnival barker routine about you're going to see uh, something that just can't even be explained by science. I think it absolutely <laughs> well, can. Which actually, you know, when you look at if when you look at Oz as a sort of um, melting pot in Dorothy's subconscious of all the stuff. So it's like, yeah, okay, so she's dreaming about all the things that have just happened. But also it's like, okay, what is Dorothy's life? It is absolutely the case that in rural Kansas at that time, at some point, the fair would have come to town and she would have seen the sideshow quote-unquote freaks. The way that she meets the three other kind of protagonists the um the scarecrow the tin man and the lion it, even that feels it's like each of them has their moment where they come to the stage and do yeah. their bit which i think possibly is one of the reasons as well why it doesn't quite tie to me because it, it feels like a series of bits and some of them you want to skip through to get to the bit that you're actually interested in the lion song i'm if i were the king of the forest which i hate that's one of my least favorite bits that's all i have to say on that that's all you have to say about that <laughs> 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 all right well so um, uh, feels like we're there. So she's on the Yellow Brick Road and she first meets the Scarecrow. Now, we've talked a little bit about the song that is sort of reprised for each of the three friends that she makes along the way. If I only had a thing. If I only had a thing. So it starts with if I only had a brain. Even this ties back to the stuff in Kansas where uh, Hunk, he's called, isn't he? In, in yes. Kansas. Um, one of the first things he says is about being stupid. You've got a head made of straw. 
he hasn't got mm-hmm. any brains, all that sort of stuff. That then, yeah, we find here, ah, he is a man made of straw without a brain. We get a similar thing with, not with the Tin Man, in, in, interestingly, but Zeke, who in Oz is the cowardly lion, is more afraid than Dorothy is when Dorothy falls in the pigsty in Kansas. Yes. So yeah, they each have a song about what they want. I want songs, aren't they? They are I want songs, but in it they have the lyrics have a lovely time with wordplay, which I appreciate entirely why people find those songs charming it it grates on me personally because they become nonsense songs that are all about wordplay but it isn't like it's not like Dr Zeus nonsense songs that are about wordplay because I find that quite clever and pleasing whereas this it's not even that clever I enjoy the stupid rhymes like this this what there's one in the lions uh, song where he goes I could show my prowess be a lion not a mouse I really enjoy I really enjoy those tortured like shit stupid rhymes that, that pleases me greatly absolutely fair dues and um, just before she meets the scarecrow mm. uh, just to go back to Glinda being a chaotic bitch she yeah. um she says all you need to do is follow the yellow brick road knowing surely that she was going to come to a crossroads and not know which way to go. Like, fuck you, Glinda. (laughs) Glinda's a nightmare. (laughs) Glinda's awful. And she's like, only bad witches are ugly. Fuck you, Glinda. Like, I agree that Margaret Hamilton's performance as the witch is fantastic, but I actually think that the witch is completely flat. And I know that they had to really get her to pull back how frightening she was because she was being too scary. And I think that there is a, a lot is detracted from that character by them trying to kind of sanitize it a little bit and clean it up and make it less frightening. Um, Because I find her utterly one note. I think she's scarier as uh, Elmira Gulch. Again, that, that word iconic, if you like looking at her performance... A little bit like we were discussing when we talked about Frankenstein. When you ask a kid to draw a witch, they draw Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch of the West. You know, the green skin, the pointed hat, the broomstick, all of that. I um, I think it's interesting that the uh, there is a, quite a big section of the end that is cut, which is setting up a romance between Dorothy and... What's he called? Hunk. Hank. Hink. Oh, Hunk. Yeah. Uh, they set up a romance between the Scarecrow and Dorothy. Right. And then that translates into the real world as a romance between Hunk. Hunk and Dorothy and I think there's a bit where Hunk is going to go off to do I know Um, so there's actually there's a few leftover gestures towards that romance throughout the film where if you go back and watch it again knowing that they were trying to set that up there's a few moments where you're like ah okay I'm glad that they cut it yeah I mean that's Um, I do know that uh, Ray Bolger and Judy Garland were very close friends later on. There's some lovely footage that Jen was showing me yesterday of the two of them on some special singing some of the songs from Wizard of Oz together. Uh, So yeah, then then they meet the Tin Man. As we discussed, Jack Haley wasn't the first choice for the Tin Man. And actually, his performance is the only performance in the film that I don't believe. That's so interesting because his is one of the performances I enjoy more. I think it's partly his kind of tone of voice and those incredible blue eyes shining out from the silver paint and stuff. Yeah, but I also, um, I think that his is the bit that doesn't make that much sense to me in terms of his want. He Mm. wants a heart. That feels a bit woolly to me. It's like, you know on, um, do you remember Captain Planet? Mm. He's a hero where they needed needed five elements. So they added, they had earth, wind, fire, water and heart. Yes. It's like, what does that actually <laughs> that mean, do? though? Yeah, what does that do? And that that's a little bit like... It's the power of empathy. But he seems to have so much empathy. I think that's, well, that's the, the problem point, is... Then. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Tin Man um, has got 
a lot of heart. He, he's the one who's crying all the time and rusting himself solid doing that. Um, so yeah, then we get the uh, we get the Tin Man's I Want song and then they carry on and then they uh, Deep Dark Woods, Lions and Tigers and Bears, oh my. Oh my. And I, I do think Bert Lauer is funny in this scene. Do you? I do. I do. He, he he makes me laugh. Great. All that front he's putting on, all that put him up, put him up stuff. All bullies are cowards. We know this. And he shows up so sort of aggressive and bullying and oh, pull an axe on me, will you? And all that sort of <laughs> stuff. And it's just all front to conceal his fear. I think that's one of the reasons why maybe the Tin Man doesn't quite work for me as um, just in terms of that he's got the thing all along. Mm. I suppose because most so with the Cowardly Lion, it doesn't appear that he has courage. He's very obvious terrified all the time so that is more of a reveal whereas the scarecrow to some extent it definitely that's a slow reveal of his brains and his kind of cunning Um, and because you know when they go to rescue dorothy from the witch's castle he does demonstrate a lot of very clever thinking he he comes up with a plan the tin man so obviously right from the moment they meet him has an enormous amount of heart so i'm a little bit like what (laughs) just tell him why have you taken him all the way to oz with you um he's you know but i'm glad they do because because he, he, I enjoy his presence a lot. Yeah, maybe that's one of the reasons I've got a problem with, with Jack Haley's performance. I mean, and I, obviously it is folly to try and find too much logic because first of all, it's a fantasy. And second of all, it's a dream sequence. But in the logic that is applied to the rest of the parts of the film, particularly those three characters, his there's no logic to it. It doesn't make any sense. So that feel it does feel hollow, like his tin chest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, then they arrive at the Emerald City. I can only imagine how much you hate the Emerald City. Yeah, no, I really hate it. I don't hate it as much. I don't. I don't hate it as much as Munchkinland. But oh, all good. of those, um, all of the shenanigans with the doorman. Oh, you need to ring the bell. Oh, there's no bell. Oh, press the bell. Knock at the door. Oh, oh, why didn't you just say so? I hate all of that. You hate all the shenanigans. Um, I love the Emerald City as far <laughs> yeah. as the um, the design goes. I mean, it's stunning to look at. I sort of came to think of the Emerald City as the the hub of a dystopia, <laughs> with the wizard as a sort of dictatorial overlord, kind of akin to Big Brother. You know what I mean? Love that. But then, do you know what? It's that thing of like, you know, we ha- we don't really get enough of an insight into the Emerald City, but actually it seems to be functioning. It seems to be working. Sure. Every- everybody's got a role in, in Soviet Russia. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but will they-, will they tie a gay bow in your hair when you go to the salon? It's another one of those things where, yeah, as you were saying, Dorothy is kind of centre stage for everybody again arrives at the Emerald City and it's like they, they put on a parade for her nobody has asked her her name at this point because no. the witch shows up on her broom with her skywriting surrender Dorothy and they're, all and like, they're like who's, who's Dorothy? Dorothy I love her doing her skywriting with it on her broomstick I love any time the witch is in flight or moving because that her costume is so wonderful so I love seeing that's that proper kind of you know, get a kid to draw a witch silhouette of her on her broom with her big hat and her cape billowing behind her. I love all of that. <laughs> yeah, and I think the flying effects are, are fabulous. Yeah. They're, they're really, really great. So the the wizard is a sort of weak and feckless man hiding behind a bit of some technology. So yeah, he sort of puts a load of obstacles in Dorothy's way to actually getting her to see the wizard. And then when when she does get in to see him, he sends her off on what you can only assume is a suicide mission. Yeah. It's a kind of Herculean labour. It's like it's it's designed mm. for her to fail. They've got a lot of pluck. They've got a lot of pluck to get there in the first place. Not not Dorothy because she's carried there by the monkeys, but um, yeah, but the other yeah. three have got a lot of pluck to get there in the first place. Well, it's kind of it isn't Dorothy's mission in the end. In terms of the storytelling, in terms of the mm-hmm. character 
journey. Dorothy is lifted out and put at the witch's castle and the rescue of Dorothy is Mm. the motivation for the other three characters. And it's that part of the journey in which they prove themselves. Yeah, I mean, again, you sort of keep coming back to this thing of the fact that all of this is taking place in Dorothy's subconscious. Mm -hmm. Dorothy places herself um, in the position of damsel in distress and in a kind of, I don't know, almost generous way because it's like she is the motivator that allows these three other characters to reach their full potential. Or She has her um, dark night of the soul um, where all is lost, the time is ticking the witch says for no reason she's like this is how long you've got to live it's like the movie at that point needs a ticking clock and so they have one they shoehorn it in in a very unsatisfactory way as far as I'm concerned but yeah so the sand is ticking through the thing and she realises how badly she wants all the stuff that she had before it's in that moment that she learns the lesson she needed to learn yeah so she doesn't need to do the actual physical journey of getting there no but she does the emotional journey let's chat about the monkeys the monkeys uh, when I was a kid the monkeys were always my favourite bit great okay I I love the monkeys actually I I like all the stuff at the castle I I like the guards Mm. I love all that stuff always did yeah 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 but i think the 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 monkeys i just i think they're so so cool (laughs) they're scary yeah yeah i think i think that's really nasty what they did they tear the scarecrow apart the poor scarecrow gets all the business he gets set on fire he gets pulled apart i I think my my response to the monkeys is like oh she's got (laughs) monkeys sure why not uh we were talking when we were discussing barton fink about the rise of fascism and i Mm. definitely think that there is a fear of Europe in everything about the witch's castle. The, her guards who go, oh, there's a very almost sort of like Cossack vibe to yes. their uniforms, Russian military, and the very kind of, um, you know, European castle um, up on the mountaintop and dungeons and guards and battlements and all that stuff. It's very, very European. And mm-hmm. again, all of that, I think, aesthetically is put in there to reinforce and galvanise the message of the all-American goodness and that is what you should be aspiring to. Exactly like you say, the Midwest, the Midwestern yeah. farm. That's where we get the night on Ball Mountain, the bomb, 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 bomb music which is fantastic it's sort of uh, Toto who saves the day isn't it like Toto several times in the movie is kind of a hero Uh, he goes and finds them and shows them the way and later on he's the one who pulls the curtain that the wizards hide in behind like Toto's a legend Um, so we get the chase around the castle and then uh, yeah the witch gets water thrown at her well no she doesn't even get water thrown at her she sets the scarecrow on fire again poor old scarecrow scarecrow. and Dorothy pulls a bucket of water over him and some gets on the witch and she melts and it's sort of by accident Mm -hmm. but then all of her guards are like you freed us from the tyranny of the Wicked Witch. Mm-hmm. And it's like, right, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I'd love to know more about the sort of um, governing structure of, of Oz and these like different factions of witches. You really want to get into the people. into the world building and the, and the law. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know how it all fucking works. Also, I do, I appreciate that this is a children's story. Yes. For God's sake. You know, this it's a fairy tale. So just, I need to just, Calm the fuck down. But I can't help but wonder. <laughs> have there been uprisings in the past? You know, um, I'm sure that is explored uh, over the course of 14 books.
What do we feel about the fact that the wizard is revealed to be a fraud? Personally, I really like that. If I take it where I am in my head with it, that the, uh, the wizard is a dictatorial overlord, when he's revealed to be all smoke and mirrors and bluster and huff and puff and nothing. I think that's actually a really important lesson for children to learn. I think that's actually one of the strongest elements of the film. And I think the idea of the man behind the curtain has been used mm. uh, for satirical purposes so often subsequently that I think that's a really useful metaphor for us to have. It's a useful uh, cultural touchstone. I, I really like that. But mm. in terms of literally just sitting there and its effect on me as a film yet again as fast as you can think you think the stakes are going to be quite high but oh no it's all sorted it's just like everything that happens in the film that should be of consequence is exactly like glinda waving her magic wand and the snow coming down you know it's like nothing means anything nothing matters for very long nothing is of any consequence oh the wizard is revealed but it's okay because they're not going to tell the residents of oz that's it's not going to mean anything to anybody other than the people in that room they're going to cover it up for him do a hush job and it's like oh he's got power but he's just a man behind a curtain but we're going to give him the power to give us what we want anyway so he's the one who's like you've had a heart all along you've had a brain all along you've had courage all along but you've just revealed him to be a fraud so why would you give a fuck about anything he's got to say about anything <laughs> and then it's like oh no Dorothy isn't on the balloon oh never mind Glinda's here it's not satisfying to me I agree with everything you have said <laughs> at the same time I don't care <laughs> yeah sure, it's just sure, it's, sure. it's it's one of those films that I just I, I have a love for in my heart sure it sort of overrides all of those all of the things that would bother me in almost any film that I would watch today I have a smile on my face when I watch it it makes me feel warm inside I'm happy with that <laughs> so is this a film that you'll come back to again and again throughout your life yeah I'm sure mm. it's not it's not one that I'll go oh I'll put The Wizard of Oz on but I will certainly watch it again and I'm sure I'll have a smile on my face and feel warm and fuzzy, which is what it's trying to do. At the start of the film, there's a dedication uh, that pops up on the screen. It says, for nearly 40 years, this story has given faithful service to the young in heart and time has been powerless to put its kindly philosophy out of fashion. To those of you who have been faithful to it in return and to the young at heart, we dedicate this picture. That's a really lovely dedication. It's a mission statement, isn't it? It's, it's actually it's saying at the start, this film isn't going to be for everybody but for somebody who if you embrace it in the way that we intend it it will mm. be with you for as long as you want it and it will make you feel warm for as long as you want it and I sort of I yeah. love it for that yeah I think it's important to point out this is a film that means an awful lot to a lot of people exactly I can't remember when they did the survey but they worked out that it is probably the most watched film in history because it, it, it isn't a Christmas film or any particular film but it is always on telly during any kind of festive time mm -hmm. so it's always on at Christmas Thanksgiving in America it's always it's just on all the time and because it is such a family friendly film it's one that you can put on sort of for all ages in the background yeah, yeah and as far as its legacy is concerned I mean, where where do you start? I mean, we've, I know. we've talked about the iconography that has endured, such as the Wicked Witch, but also the Ruby Slippers, the Yellow Brick Road, as Elton John had an album yep. named after that Yellow Brick Road. So many cultural touchstones came out of this. The Man yeah. Behind the Curtain, as I just mentioned. So I guess my question is, for all of the all of its flaws, and I I really haven't actually disagreed with 
um, very many of your points. I've probably not defended the film as robustly as some people would have liked me to uh, for that very reason. Why do you think it has had such a strong cultural impact, I guess is my question. It, I think it probably comes down to two things. Like It is visually iconic. I think that it must contain some of the most recognisable images in history. They use Technicolor, but also the way that everything about the production design is geared towards really amping up the impact of that Technicolor. And it is absolutely littered with bits that's like, that's so cool. The ruby slippers, they're so cool. They look so cool. The wiz- the Wicked Witch being green, all of that stuff. It's so much to do with colour and the, the look of it. Um, but the other thing I think is just that it's absolute kind of core value, that thing about reinforcing the American dream. It's Americanness and its status as the first American fairy tale. It's the most American film. <laughs> and also the way that it really distances itself from Europe. It's like America as a standalone unit and this is this is the culture and the message and the imagery that America is aspiring to which I think is really important and there's a lot about that aspiration that's really great so the 20th century was really the American century it was the century that America dominated the world economically and culturally so 1939 when it mm. came out we're talking Europe's in all kinds of trouble America would just sort of starting to get involved uh, it's interesting there's a misconception that America came into the war as like Billy Big Bollocks with all it, you know, incredible military, all this stuff. You've got to remember that America mm. at this point in history and at the time that it entered the war was a total underdog because yeah. it was fucked. It, it had just come out off the back of, as we've talked about over the past few episodes, um, it's just come off the back of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. So mm-hmm. it's economically fucked. Yep. It's got no resources. It's absolutely in a state. When America enters the war, it's not like, here come the cavalry. It's like reactionary mm-hmm. to the attack on Pearl Harbor because there wasn't really any idea that America was in any, any position to enter the war at that point. It's like it it had enough issues at home, which mm. again is so much part of the American dream, this kind of scrappy underdog overcoming everything. So by the t- when, you know, America, America's success in the war and obviously America coming into the war is one of the main reasons why the Allied forces did win it. It's an underdog story. Everybody likes to see the underdog come good but you can take that back as far as you want really the the idea of the underdog the sword in the stone (laughs) or David and Goliath. Yeah exactly. The underdog is vital to uh, to the fabric of stories. I do just want to briefly touch on in terms of lasting legacy I want to briefly look at The Wizard of Oz and its importance in gay culture. Yes. None of this is from my own brain. This is all stuff that I've read. Um, but I just think it's really important to talk about it, you know, in terms of our, like slang, being a friend of Dorothy, all that stuff. Yeah. I think it's fair to say, I hope that I'm using the right language here. Yeah. The Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion are a uh, very camp. The Tin Man is very camp, but also the Cowardly Lion, the things that he says about himself, he calls himself a dandelion and a sissy. Does, yeah. And a lot of words that he uses about himself are words that were used as gay slurs at the time. And what happens in the story is Dorothy comes across these three people, these three characters, sorry, yeah. one of them's alive, um, <laughs> and absolutely, without question, accepts them at face value, takes them into her heart, loves them, embraces them, and becomes friends with them with no prejudice or baggage or anything. And that, I think, to see that happen on screen for a gay person in the 40s must have been 
unbelievably important yes. and rare and strange and it must have been a really special experience yeah. so I think that's one of the reasons why I mean there must be loads and loads and loads of other reasons but I think that's one of the main things yeah I think you're probably on the money with that and yeah they, there will be many other reasons and obviously we can't paint the entire gay, com- gay community with uh, with one brush I'm sure there oh will no, be. That, uh, no we, <laughs> but, yeah. we can oh, we can, can. We? Oh, they're, all, they're all the same you know Ed <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking obviously but no, I, 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 think, I think that that sounds pretty much on money. And that's sort of where my instinct was, that it's, it's something to do with acceptance and a longing for acceptance. Um, the, the song Somewhere of the Rainbow can, I think, be interpreted when taken out of context of the film mm. just as a standalone song i think it can be interpreted as a longing for all sorts of things uh, for a place where you are accepted for who you are and i think you can't can't discount judy garland in her personal life uh, how supportive of of not only the gay community actually but um she was very supportive of civil rights movement and yeah all sorts of stuff she was really important her, her unfortunately brief life but she was also you know she married a man who by all accounts and um, who yeah. we discussed last week vincent, vincent minnelli who we uh, we did discuss uh, the fact that he lived an openly gay life in New York yeah. when he you know working and um, their daughter Liza has become an enormous gay icon huge also um, lovely just a little bit of other business Liza Minnelli married Jack Haley Jr oh is that right huh. so Dorothy's daughter and the Tin Man's son oh, were married lovely? in real life I know yeah so yeah in 1989 when when the Library of Congress launched the National Film Registry which preserves films for being culturally historically or aesthetically significant it was one of the first 25 films I wonder what the other ones are I'm trying to think what they might be Citizen Kane maybe yeah probably Citizen Kane I would guess Gone with the Wind Snow White and the Seven Dwarves probably great pub quiz question I bet there's some stuff in there we've never even heard of there must be okay so yeah the uh, the first 25 entries of, uh, to the National Film Registry The Best Years of Our Lives which I don't know nope never heard of that Casablanca which I love Citizen Kane which I've not seen no I've not seen it either The Crowd Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb uh, Steve Coogan is starring in the stage adaptation of it oh are they doing that are they <laughs> Good luck with that, the yeah. producers. Uh, the General, the Buster Keaton film, that big. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Gone with the Wind, uh, Grapes of Wrath, High Noon, Intolerance, silent film from 1916, directed by D.W. Griffith. Uh, the Learning Tree. I don't know what that is. It's from 1969, apparently. The Maltese Falcon, uh, Modern Times, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Nanook of the North, which is a documentary. Okay. On the Waterfront, The Searchers. Singing in the Rain, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Some Like It Hot, Star Wars, Sunrise, Sunset Boulevard, Vertigo, and The Wizard of Oz. Interesting, interesting. Should we play the game then? Yeah, let's work out what we're going to watch next week. I say work out, I know. Yeah. Already. As the game works, you've picked the film that we're going to pick next because I picked this one. So first of all, I'm going to say what I would pick. Then I'm going to say what I think you've picked. And then you're going to reveal all. So first mm-hmm. of all, I, there are a few things sort of doing. I thought of picking up on just that little snippet of uh, of music and watching Fantasia. Um, yeah. That, that would have been fun. We're not doing that. Really fun. Um <laughs> The other thing that actually what what I decided I wanted to do was follow my idea of this dictatorial overlord uh, to its sort of big brother conclusion and watch 1984, which I've never seen that adaptation. John Hurt, isn't it? I think the wonderful John Hurt. So, yeah, that's what I would pick. I don't think that's what you've picked. Jem reckons you've picked Twister. If you've picked Twister. (laughs) 
then we um, uh, yeah i'm gonna have a word <laughs> we've um, we've discussed before on the podcast the fact that i really love twister and yeah. and jem really loves twister and you really hate twister just i can't i can't be doing with it <laughs> i haven't chosen twister no the thought did cross my mind i was briefly worried that you might have picked gone with the wind not because i don't want to watch gone with the wind just because it's long and you generally like to watch these films twice i do like so... to yeah no what i think you might have picked i think you might have gone for the black and white to color as an aesthetic and picked pleasantville interesting which i'd be very happy with because that's one of my favorite films we are going to have to actually decide what we're going to have as a prize for people who get it right because we are watching pleasantville (laughs) (laughs) yes Right, oh, we're, one so all, we're, we're one all, Ed. We're one all. Yeah, so I've only ever seen Pleasantville once, but I know it's one of your absolute favourite films. But it's interesting because it uses um, a change from black and white to colour, but it does it in a much more... It, it's a really key part of the plot rather than a kind of a part of the spectacle. It's uh, directed and written by Gary Ross. It was released in March 1999. It stars Toby Maguire and uh, Reese Witherspoon, uh, as well as a absolute host of other fabulous Jan fabulous Allen, Jeff Daniels William H Macy gorgeous so so yeah I'm really looking forward to this one and it is available to rent in all the usual places I couldn't find it on any streaming services but do always have a quick flick through iPlayer 4OD all of those places okay well um, I think that all that remains to say is thank you very very much for listening to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain if you like what you hear please do leave us a little review uh, rate us and most importantly tell other people your friends and enemies and people you meet in the street what was I going to say oh yeah you can um, get in touch with us through any of the social medias and also our email which is down in the show notes and we can't wait to speak to you in a couple of weeks to have a chat about Pleasantville yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me love you lots bye 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 goodbye goodbye (laughs) just because I know you hate the sound of music. <laughs> <laughs>